etiquette is like another virtue because it gives you the path. Because somebody can tell their child, well, you need to be good. And for me, etiquette is how you are to be good. It's a path to show you how to actually live out these virtues that we're taught. It's respecting others, respecting yourself. And it also lends itself to go deeper to where you're like, well, if I have to respect myself and others, why? And it's like, well, because we have dignity, because we're made in the image and likeness of God and we're children of God. And that's why we do this. How does beauty touch and transform the human heart? What are the daily life experiences that the church provides to us so that we can connect to the deeper longings of the human heart? In this episode, costume designer and entrepreneur Sequoia Sierra will share her experience as to how the beauty of the church rescued her and how it can also rescue the entire world. We should have beauty and mystery to draw people in. Because if it's a, something that's banal and everyday, I mean, you know, you have some people in one camp where they're like, oh, we have to make it accessible and make it so that, you know, kids want to go. And it, it ends up really dumbing it down. And that's not what they want, especially for the younger generations. They're intrigued by mystery. It's something that speaks to all the senses, the smell of the incense, even the side of it, you know, the beauty of the vestments, the beautiful music or chant, you know, it's just, it, it elevates your soul and it, it, it is a preview of heaven, you know, where it should be. It shows you that there's something greater here and just points to that mystery, which is what true beauty should always do. You're about to hear how, as we let the beauty of God permeate our lives, we can use daily things like etiquette, fashion, and even the liturgy to show others the way towards Christ. This is Living the Call. Sequoia, God bless you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Awesome for you to be here. So, you know, just so you know, funny story. I was actually looking, because I know that you're, you've got a lot of this etiquette and mindset stuff. We're going to talk about that. Right. But I was trying to figure out, like, what is it that you call someone who does or teaches etiquette? Uh, that's a good question. I just have been referred to as like an etiquette teacher. <laughs> right. So that's pretty much about it. Miss so Manners. <laughs> the nearest that I could find was um, there's the word courtier. You know, oh, it, which mm-hmm. is the person in the kind of royal court right. who would sort of advise the kings and queens that about the protocols and different things like that. Yeah. And the feminine version of that is courtiere with an, with the accent over the the second E, so courtiere. Oh, mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe you're a courtiere. Okay. If that's what Good it is. Good to know. But, An- um, another title to add. <laughs> exactly. Another one. So there you go. And you got it from me. So make sure you, you, you tell yes. people. Courtiere. Okay. Um, we started the show with a quote from Dostoevsky, which is actually on your site, right? Beauty will save the world. Why, what's that about? Why'd you, why'd you pick that? Well, I picked that because I just feel like it kind of encapsulates my ethos of my life um, and what I'm all about. Because I do love a variety of things. And I think for a while I was kind of having a hard time thinking like, what what is it I, that I'm about? And the unifying factor between everything, whether it be the work with religious or etiquette or design or even making good and beautiful food, um, it's all about beauty um, and elevating, you know, even everyday life by beauty. And I think, too, with our current political climate and our culture, people aren't coming from the same standpoint that they would have years ago where we all might have had a liberal arts education and they would have had reason and logic and all these other things taught in school Mm -hmm. and had a better understanding about natural law. But now they don't have that background. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, how do we reach those people? Because obviously just, you know, spouting out specific things about the faith or whatever it might be isn't enough to captivate them, especially if they're coming from a completely different understanding or worldview. But beauty is something that in and of itself, it it attracts people and it just Mm -hmm. draws them in. So that's why I think that beauty... It will save the world. That 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 has to be a huge um, part in in whatever work someone does. Sure. In in bringing people and and lifting their minds and hearts to God. Do you think the appetite for beauty has changed or evolved? Do you, do you rate that in your mind as a constant, or do you think that people at certain ages are maybe more longing for beauty? Like, how, what's your perspective on that? 
I think it's always an innate need and desire because mm. I think even a little child, there'll be things that it's attractive to, like pretty shiny little toys and things. And of course, it differentiates between girls and boys typically, but still, they always have an attraction to something that they they find some sort of value or beauty in. Um, you know, they're not. It's not our natural inclination to go to something that's scary and hideous. You know, where your our natural inclination is to recoil from such things. Mm -hmm. And same with little children. You know, like there's certain films and things they can't see because, mm -hmm. you know, certain characters can scare sure. them. Or around Halloween, you know, there's certain things that can scare a little child. Um, so those things we know are not beautiful. Um, but I do think that that's something we're always searching for, for. And that's, you know, of course, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So depending on and that's where kind of our, you know, what we're raised in can really influence what that is. But still, I do think that there is a lot of objective beauty out there where even somebody who is raised in South L.A. compared to somebody who's raised you know, in a castle somewhere, <laughs> can still say, ah, this thing is beautiful. That sunset on the beach is beautiful. Um, that person is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there's just an objective beauty. Were you always so focused on this can, that you can recall? Is it something from a young age? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think at, at that as a child, I necessarily knew it was beauty, but it was always things that were beautiful. And mm. I've always been concerned with etiquette and what's appropriate to do in this situation. And how can I make my area, you know, more beautiful, whether it was my bedroom or when I would cook for my siblings and all those sorts of things. Like it, it was always a, an obsession of mine. Interesting. Is there fashion. a particular source of inspiration, at least for the etiquette that you can think of that, that I mean, you talked yes. about people being brought up in mansions and be brought up in other things. How were, how were you brought up? Like what, what was part of that uh, formation for you? Yes. Well, so my background is <laughs> pretty complex. A little bit on the phone. Yeah, it is. <laughs> right? there's it's a, lot a fun of, background. Yeah, there's a lot of um, trauma, drama, mm -hmm. all that in there. But one of the shining beacons in my life as a child was being raised really in a huge way by the Carmelites and that's the Carmelite sisters of the Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. I was actually, you know, born at their hospital. They held me before my parents did. Wow. So I think there was an instant, you a know, little kind of little, a side consecration there yeah. to Our Lady, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know why, but just, you know, religious hugs from religious just feel different. I think oh, it's yeah. just that habit, you know, it's like I recognize it since birth. I'm like, oh, this is home. You did that thing with the, like the, the, the uh, what is it, the geese or the ducks do where they imprint on the first thing yeah. that they see, you know? I mean, you saw exactly. that, that I was habit. Like, Mom? Like, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, so, and they were huge on etiquette. I mm. mean, you know, as a child, mm -hmm. you know, being around them. And uh, again, later on with my parents' divorce and that sort of a thing, my refuge was always a convent. I would just take off and go over there for like every single weekend, pretty much. Um, and even during the week. <laughs> so they were very... Um, you know, in a loving way, but they were strict and they would also constantly remind you because that is something which parents know with their children. You can't just tell your child one time and they're going to remember it for all their life. You have to, you know, it's a repetition. And that's how they were with me too, where it was a repetition of how to stand and walk and all this sort of a thing and eat and just, you know, different things to be considerate about, which I think the convict kind of lent itself to more than elsewhere, especially mm -hmm. a Carmelite convent, just because they're they're trying to focus on loving God and loving their neighbor in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. So they're obviously going to be mindful even of how they are and how much noise someone's making because they want to respect the prayer of the other person. Um, so that was always kind of, you know, drilled in because it was brought up so much mm -hmm. that that that's what um, formed me in that. So, yeah, they, they're the ones that taught me etiquette. Um, and even though I, you know, have done some self-study on other things in that world, they're really the ones who instilled that in me. Were you, were your siblings also part of this, this upbringing that you had? It's a very no. interesting and unusual <laughs> upbringing. And yeah. it's, it's a, what a blessing it is to look back on something like that and see exactly how God's hand was in all this. Stuff, exactly. But. Yeah, no, I mean, it. they would come around the convent and different events. And, you know, my brothers would go to the summer camp at St. Michael's Abbey and that sort of a thing. But they, we all kind of, um, you know, when we were a certain age, we all kind of sought our own refuge. So, and, you know, it's like when somebody's in pain, you, you seek other things. So for some of them, it was their own friend group or whatever it might be. But for me, it happened to be the convent. Thanks be to God. Like mm -hmm. that was just 
what I was drawn to, where I felt safe, where I felt really loved and protected. And I mean, the sisters have just been such a huge, not only an inspiration, but also, I mean, they've been a motivation, them and the Norbertines, whether it's, you know, telling me like, hey, you should do this because you are capable of doing that, where I wouldn't have probably ventured out on some of these things on my own had I not had that confidence instilled from them or known that they were there to cheer me on. Now, the Norbertines, because that's the first time you mentioned it, I know because we've talked on the phone that you're also very involved with the Norbertine uh, community, the Order of Canons Regular of Premontre, right? The Premonstratensians. Yes. Which is tough. (laughs) Now, it's like, you know, Anybody listening just went like, okay, this is at a completely different level. But they're they're uh, <laughs> they're religious. They're they're a religious order. I think it goes back uh, maybe eleven twenty one. Yeah, eight nine hundred years, yes. right? Okay, but I mean, how do you how do you come across uh, the Norbertines? Well, actually, from, because of the Carmelites, so okay. pretty much everything good has come via They've the Carmelites. You, You're right. You over. <laughs> they, you know, helped. Were there when I came into this world, and they've been there to guide things ever since. But so I, you know, was in the nun mode. I call it from mm-hmm. age twelve to eighteen, where I actually thought I was going to enter with the Carmelites. I even started. I was going to ask you. So you did discern a vocation, oh, yeah. or potentially. Yeah. Yeah, I started actually um, the beginnings of like pre-formation with them. I mean, I had begged from twelve to enter, but they finally about I think I was. 16 and a half or maybe 17 when I was finally allowed to become a pre-candidate. So I did begin formation at that point. What was it, not to pause the story, but sure. just, but to pause the story. Right. What was it <laughs> what, what was it at 12 when you're like, I, I just, I gotta be, you know, a religious sister. Like, what was that? What was, in like, how did that feel? What did you think was, was, was happening at that point at 12 years old? Yeah, it was actually... For me, that was my reversion at 12. And I know you might think like, well, you were freaking 12 years old. <laughs> what do you mean you reverted? But I really didn't care about my faith at, before that. Like I really felt like Even going though to mass, you were involved in some of these Even environments? though I was involved in environments, in, in our church choir, all that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Catholic school before I was homeschooled. So, you know, I was around it a lot. But it, it was kind of more through the motions. It, it wasn't internalized. I didn't, God was somebody who was distant. Um, and I'm sure, of course, trauma lends itself to to that worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I was, you know, born with the Carmelites, I wasn't really around them again until I was 12. Like I would only see them here and there once in a while. But when I was 12 was when you were allowed to legally go and volunteer. So that's what meant I could spend the copious oh, amounts of times I ended okay. up spending over sure. there. But I just remember my first day I volunteered with them when I was finally 12 years old and I was allowed to go. And it was just an overall like <laughs> lightning bolt moment where I just felt like this is it. This is because even at 12 years old, I felt very unhappy. Um, and of course, that's because of, of the family dynamic that was going on at the time. But there I just saw their peace, their joy, mm-hmm. and I wanted it more than anything in the world. Mm. So it just like uh, was a complete 180 in, in my heart where I just knew I was changed forever. And I knew that, you know, like that it was just mind boggling that that kind of love and joy could exist because I had never seen it before. And so, maybe being on your own, you could recognize that more than previous times you'd interact in these environments. The fact that you were volunteering by yourself, I guess. Yeah. And and it's the first time I was, yeah, just me and them. And I right. wasn't like, I didn't have like a parent with me mm-hmm. at a conference or something like that, you know, where it was real interaction. I think the other times it was more of like, oh, hello, wave kind of a thing. But this was where I had actual conversations with the sisters and just was a part of their life for that day. Mm-hmm. So it forever changed me. And from then on, I was just like, I'm. this is it. This is what I want. Like, I want that joy, that peace that they have. I, I you know, I want that more than anything. And, and so that's what I ended up um, being in that mode, which providentially God, I think, used, even though that ended up not being what I was called to, um, to keep me focused on him, especially with what did go on with my family. Because had he not, I would definitely be in a very different place than I would be. I probably wouldn't be a Catholic sure. even, you know, practicing Catholic anymore. Um, so that's what kept me, my eyes on him. Were your parents divorced young? Yes. Like when you were young? Yes. Okay. Yeah. By the time I was 15, it was all over. Got it. So it was a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Now I can imagine. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I think we were in a culture now where I think sadly um, the, 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 the significance of divorce is not considered 
to right. the degree that it that it should be. From right. a child's perspective, it's something that's significant. It can be very traumatic, and you know, yeah. um, and it's also something that I think I found in my own personal experience. My parents uh, were not divorced. My wife's were, and I've I've you know obviously had a lot of uh, interaction with her as a result of of this dynamic. But what I think oftentimes people consider is that. If you're a certain age, somehow you sort of get past something like, oh, right. if, you know, the kids are 18 or 20 or 30 or whatever, but it's always, you know, mom and dad. It's always exactly. family. And it's always hard. So, and of course, there were so many other circumstances within it that made it a very, um, it wasn't a smooth transition, I guess, <laughs> mm. <laughs> to put it <laughs> nicely. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, so I'm so grateful for that because, um, and just grateful that God guided me to seeking refuge with them um, because that really changed everything. And so, you know, being there um, and thinking I was going to become a nun, they had a confessor who was a Norbertine priest. And so he would come and hear their confessions. And I remember uh, thinking, because I, I got really into my faith at 12 years old at mm-hmm. that point. Like I, I was reading St. John of the Cross, really? Dark Night of the Soul, wow. and loving it, like just eating it up. The, by the way, percentage <laughs> of uh, 12-year-olds reading the Christian mystics is sadly very right. low. So <laughs> right. you're, you're in rare <laughs> company for a uh, 21st century American. Right. How so, did you even, but I mean, who's recommending this? The Norbertines or the, the Carmelites are going read I was doing it St. on St. John of the Cross. You just... I, yeah. What were your resources? Like, what's a 12-year-old using to find out these things? Well, I think it was the, the sisters did have a library. Mm-hmm. So I would, you, you know, utilize their library and their books there. And I knew he was a Carmelite saint. So I was like, oh, well, I got to read this because he's like, you know, one of the reformers of the Carmelite order. Sure. So I did. Um, but in reading those sorts of things, I read the lives of the saints. And then I saw how they all had confessors and spiritual directors. And I was like, oh, I, I think like if I'm going to become a saint, like I need one of those. So since they had a confessor that was always the one who would hear the novitiate. So once you enter he would automatically become your spiritual director. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I might as well just have him now because that way he can guide me and he's going to be my confessor one day anyway. So I started going to him. <laughs> at 12, you know, I, by that time I was probably like 13. Um, and he, he became my spiritual director and was for many years until um, I was more involved at the Abbey and then another one of our Norbertines became my confessor, who's been my confessor now for over 10 years. One of my favorite uh, so. quotes from a saint is actually attributed to St. Teresa of Avila. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't know the exact quote, but it has to do with spiritual direction and, and her and confessors. And the paraphrase is something on the order of when you're looking for a spiritual director or confessor to look for someone who is very, very knowledgeable on the faith and not necessarily someone who's holy. And I think, or you perceive as holy, right? And I think her quote is something like, that the holy person can lead you to hell kind of thing. It's a very jarring quote. But the, but the point of it is, is that it's not, your perception of what someone's walk is that, you know, you, I want to be like them or emulate them, but it's what that person, what they're grounded in that can mm-hmm. help you as a director, as a confessor. Yes. And I've always thought that was a super cool quote. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, I mean, it really does make you think like, okay, I mean, and it makes sense though, too. And a lot of times I think we can get kind of, uh, you know, by like emotional spiritualism in a, in a way that where it's like, oh, well, that makes me feel good. So I want to go that way. And that priest seems so sweet. So, but he might not be the one to, you know, to lay down the law you. or to keep you accountable, you know, um, <laughs> like mine do. <laughs> well, and that's important too. I <laughs> mean, the, the whole idea of discipline right. we forget is based on the word disciple. You know what I yes. mean? It's like you, yeah. got, you need the, the, the guardrails sometimes so you don't go off to the, you know, the precipice. Exactly. Yeah. So... I'm, yeah, it's, they're, they're amazing confessors and spiritual directors. But I knew from reading the lives of the saints that I'm like, okay, I can't do this on my own. I need that to guide me, to mm. tell me what I should do. And again, that's just, you know, the Holy Spirit <laughs> giving a little 12-year-old inspiration that yeah. since I wasn't getting that formation or that guidance from my parents mm-hmm. on the faith, you mm-hmm. know, um, to go do, and seek that elsewhere. Well, d- does your family come from a, a, a like, uh, have they been Catholic f- for a while? Are they fallen away? What was a, What was your faith upbringing? Just if I, if I can ask. Yeah, we were Catholic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we would go to mass pretty much yeah every Sunday, mm-hmm. but it was it wasn't really. I would say I think that we thought we were practicing Catholics, but we missed the mark on a lot of things. I think we thought if we check these boxes, therefore we're Catholic. Um, but it's so much more than that. 
it, it was lived so different in the convent and with the Norbertines um, than than anything we experienced. Like we never really prayed the rosary as mm-hmm. a family. Rarely, I think we did it on like once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just a lot of those things that were missing. It was more of like, well, if we go to mass, then we're covered. We're fine. Yeah, you know. And if you go to confession every so often, then you're fine. Or you went to Catholic school, so was we're ca- good. <laughs> was Catholicism? What did it? Did it? Was there a cultural component of it as well? Like your, yeah. your family background? I know you've got this super hippie, right. awesome name, <laughs> Sequoia Sierra. It's like such a cool stage name. I love right. it. But like, I mean, what's your your background? Is is uh, is it cultural as well? That Catholicism? Yes, it is cultural. I mean, we're heavily like Hispanic. We have a bunch of other things between you know Native American and European blood and all that mm-hmm. kind of a thing, but, you know, predominantly Hispanic. So it is cultural. And most of my family, while they they will identify as Catholics, they are not practicing, you know, or they've fallen away from the faith or they haven't done all their sacraments or, you know, or they're kind of like, well, I would like to get my kid baptized, but that's about it. Mm. And it's like, well, that's not being Catholic. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, um, you know, we were a little bit above, I guess, not not to use like a derogatory thing, but we were a little bit better than just like, okay, you're going to get your sacraments and that's it because at least we were going to Mass every Sunday and they were trying to implement certain things. But I think because of their own turmoil going on in the marriage and the family, there was just so much that was not mm. implemented or that even um, was used like, well, we have to do this because we're Catholic and it ended up kind of churning some of my siblings away because it was the faith wasn't done out of love. It was done out of duty or like you had to. Mm. Um, so it wasn't presented in a way of God loves you and this is why you want to do these things. It was more of this harsh kind of dictatorial view of God that we had, which is why I had really uh, felt very distanced from the faith, you mm-hmm. know, before 12 years old where I had that, you know, kind of little conversion moment with the Carmelites because all of a sudden God was love. He Mm. wasn't this harsh, horrible person who was looking out to get me to send me to hell Mm. because that was what I knew before that. Really? So, of course, as a child, it's like, that's pretty scary. (laughs) So no wonder I was like, "Eh, no, thank you. (laughs) I remember my mom, funny story. I mean, look, my my parents were, did the best they can, they could as well. And I have them to thank, frankly, for the faith that I have. And God's used that to kind of work what he's done. But I remember one time when I was, I don't know, four or five years old, my mom saying something like, you know, because I I got mad at her and I was like, I kind of raised my hand. And and, and of course, I would have never hit her, but it was just me being rebellious and like trying to show I was probably six years old when I did this and she told me that like if you raised your hand up at your mom that God would make it fall your arm fall off and it was like you know that was that was really you know frightening and I remember like thunder you know thunder was maybe God's angry at somebody right so this this idea and which I always kind of attributed to kind of a cultural things as an adult yeah because I I had some of that Hispanic like even the family that you know they don't go to church or anything really but they would say things like if you look in the mirror too long you're going to see the devil because it was like bad to be vain or to think you looked nice Mm -hmm. and it was just you know it's just such a completely different mindset that's not Catholic. I yeah, mean, some of these things really are isn't. Jansenistic even with the sure. way they were about things regarding the body and the human person that it just, it, it, it made God scary and out to get you. Mm. And the and the Carmelites then showed you that example of like, here's how you actually live an authentic faith. And mm-hmm. you saw that and it was attractive. It exactly. Was back to beauty. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful and it was joyful. There was nothing harsh and foreboding. And it was like, Oh, okay. If this is what it is, then I like this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so And you were and you were doing that from twelve to what? Were you were to you about eighteen? To about eighteen. Yeah. And at eighteen, what happened? So at eighteen, um, I think a lot of the more of the fallout of what we had gone through, a lot of the trauma was starting to catch up. Mm. Um, which, you know, even with the Carmelites, yes, you you know, you go through application and things like that, but I think we we saw that a lot of what had happened in my childhood needed to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, of and, and then also it was just, um, it was a lot of situation of, of feeling like I needed to be there for my siblings and that sort of a thing. And I ended up discerning like, okay, I'm not called to enter there right now. Um, and then, you know, I did look at other religious orders as well. And then, you know, eventually, even, even years later, I mean, up until... I think 2024, 20, around there, I was still looking at, like I even discerned with a Norbertine uh, cloister as well, since I'm so close to our Norbertines and Amelie order Norbertine. So even though I love the Carmelites, definitely the Norbertine spirituality is really what I feel very much called to. 
But at that point, then it was a lot of health problems since I have like autoimmune disease and that sort of a thing. So, you know, even my spiritual doctor and confessor at the time were like, okay, look, it's not for you. (laughs) It was like, okay, all right, Lord. So that was a whole other like healing journey of being okay with that too and learning like, okay, Lord, I don't know why. But then as I did self-work and started to heal the trauma that we went through and that sort of a thing, then it made me realize like, wow. I could have been a really bad religious if I hadn't healed these things. And also having my eye on our Lord all that time, that kept me from just so much that could have gone on. I mean, and I have friends who they had similar situations in their family and they didn't have that. And then they ended up, you know, being pregnant outside of marriage and, you know, all just, just these different things that it's like, well, you know, you could deal with pain in a more constructive way, but you didn't know how because you didn't have those tools. So, you know, this is what what our Lord used, essentially, I know, for me. But then also, not only was it his way of keeping me close to him and out of trouble, um, because I didn't have that, you know, instilled from my family environment, it was very conducive to kind of doing, like, whatever you want. (laughs) Um, So, um, but then uh, it also, along the way, with, you know, loving religious life and understanding it so well and being in formation and all that sort of a thing, it just gave me uh, so much of a love for that, that when I ended up doing design work later on on, and then being able to combine those now with like, you know, my liturgical company where we do vestments and habits, it just makes more sense because it really does take somebody who understands religious life. And there's even a certain, um, and, and this kind of ties into etiquette too, you know, where there's just a different protocol in different situations and there's a certain sensitivity and decorum that needs to exist when you're dealing with religious orders. And I understand that because they raised me. So it's very easy when I'm, you know, meeting with priests or religious to to understand how they want to be approached with these different sorts of things um, and just the different sensitivities that it, you know, that it requires. All of these things, uh, the idea of decorum, Mm -hmm. etiquette, politeness, manners, um, rubrics, liturgy, all of these things in a way are just opportunities for us to recognize God in all things, but also just to recognize, uh, to be aware, to just, you know, draw our Mm -hmm. awareness up. There's something about being aware the best example probably is being in the desert. When you're in the desert, which is such, why it's such a great Lenten kind of image, your senses are peaked. You know, there's no distractions. It's like you're constantly focused on what's around you. And that's why it's a great place for reflection and for, you know, contemplation, prayer, et cetera. We live in a world full of distractions, right? It kind of anathema to the idea of, 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 of manners and politeness and etiquette because we're so constantly distracted. We miss all these cues. So exactly. in a way, to me, this idea of, of, of etiquette, which to some people may say, oh, that's kind of old fashioned or whatever it is. But there's something more there, which is like, mm-hmm. hey, if you're aware of the situation you're in and the way to behave in those given situations, you're just more attuned to stuff. And exactly. ultimately, if you are, that's how God can maybe talk to us more. Right. And it can diffuse a situation, too, because, I mean, you can tell if somebody's getting agitated, like, all right, well, then don't push their buttons, you know, or let's change the subject or let's, you know, let's let's change the what's going on here right now. Hmm. But also with etiquette, and I do, you know, I've heard a lot of people where they, yeah, think it's just stuffy rules and that sort of a thing. Um, And one of the ways in which I present it when I've taught it is about dignity because that's really what it's about. Mm. And I could understand like if it was just stuffy rules, well then sure, it doesn't really matter because then it's arbitrary. But it's really a way to live out virtue. So for me, etiquette is like another virtue because it gives you the path. Because somebody can tell their child, well, you need to be good. It's like, okay, well, how do I be good? And for me, etiquette is how you are to be good. It's a path to show you how to actually live out these virtues that we're taught. Um, So it's respecting others, respecting yourself. And it also lends itself to go deeper to where you're like, well, if I have to respect myself and others, why? And it's like, well, because we have dignity, because we're made in the image and likeness of God and we're children of God. And that's why we do this. So it's it becomes an act of love. So again, it's kind of like with my childhood and with God, how I viewed him as this, you know, out to get you dictatorial figure um, opposed to being loved. And same with this, it changes that game. It changes it from just being rules to being like, no, this is a way to be kind to others and to, you know, 
respect myself. Do you think it also in a way helps us to recognize the kind of uniqueness of of people in given circumstances? Like I know that in etiquette there are you know, people think etiquette and they're like, okay, which salad, which fork is it that right. is on the outside? You know, things <laughs> right. like that, which is also kind of cool to know all mm-hmm. that stuff. But, but I'm thinking about, you know, the, um, the way to address people, the mm-hmm. way to engage with people, exactly. to recognize their office if they have one. And, in a way, it's a way to also acknowledge the uniqueness of all of us, right? And the, Absolutely. The, 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 yeah. the, the way God's called us. Exactly. Yeah, no, it does. At least that's what I think. But but I'm a fan of uh, of all those things etiquette, and I'm a bit of an Anglophile too. So like right, you know, same. The, the British the British culture is uh, is is awesome in all these things. Now you mentioned design a moment ago. Did you get into design with the Carmelites? Like when do you recall getting into the idea of making things? Like when was that? Well, that has been with me since I was, goodness, um, for as long as I can remember. Uh, As a toddler, even my mom would give me um, fabric scraps and I would make outfits out of them on my doll, even before I could sew. Um, She's like, you would just wrap it on in such a way. And it was like this, you know, creation of their outfit. And I'd always been so into into that. And again, it's that beauty, that attractiveness. So if somebody was dressed well, it was like, oh, I want to I want to look like that. Or I would change this to make it look better. And, you know, as as a little girl, I always thought I want to be a fashion designer. (laughs) So that's always been there. And when I was going to enter the convent, I thought, okay, well, that is just one of those gifts, those those things in my heart that I'm just going to offer to God, because obviously that's not going to happen. Um, but then, you know, as I discerned <laughs> and found out, okay, you're not, not supposed to enter the convent right now, then it was like, oh, well, you want me to do design now <laughs> then? I can actually live that <laughs> that desire out. Um, and, and so I did. So, you know, I ended up, I, I went to Christendom College for a year and then I came back and then I went into design um, and started doing that and actually with film and television to begin with. So I was going to say, you got design. into the entertainment industry right. as, a way, as a designer, <laughs> right? So, which I'm very familiar with, right into the belly of the beast in a way. Right. So How, what was, was that? Funny. I mean, what, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess it was just kind of like, all right, I'm going to be in the world now. So what do I want to do? Um, because I thought I was going to be in the climate, but I'm not. So I guess I should date and I should, you know, look into these sorts of things and be successful in the world. So for me at the time, it was like, I guess success looks like being famous in Hollywood. So I guess I should go to that. So it is kind of a funny, you know, churn. But Again, having had the Carmelites and all of that and and still, you know, having all of them and the Norbertines while I was pursuing those things, it still kept me very centered because there was definitely a lot of opportunity to go the wrong way. I actually started off with acting at first um, and I, you know, tried some things out. I was booked for certain things. I mean, I had to leave a set before because I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I just, there's no way. Um, it's, you know, things that were really made you on a daily, you had to defend your morals. And then I realized, you know, I'm just going to get blacklisted and I'm not going to be able to work because I won't do all these different things that they want me to. Did you find yourself, were you the kind that would, are you like by nature temperamentally kind of, you would challenge something or you were more the kind of like, you know what, I'll sort of remove myself from these environments. Not that there's only those two ways to deal with things, but you must have come across stuff every day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I took more of the quiet approach mm-hmm. of where where I could, especially because, you know, if you make a stink, they do blacklist you. So it was like, okay, how do I not compromise my morals, but also not do this and like not get them upset? But then eventually it just became clear. Like, And again, there, there was that time where I walked off a set, I was booked you know, to do this show, at least that's what I was told, ended up being in the San Fernando Valley. Mm. And I got there and just walking into the building, it just, it, it felt heavy. And then we were going through all these levels um, that we went up like four flights of stairs and each level you would see different rooms and the way the women were dressed. And I was like, oh my gosh, what where yourself into? am I? What yeah. kind of show is this? Because it was like a Hispanic is what I was told mm-hmm. network. And then when I got to where they wanted me and then the costume person was like, here, you're going to put this on. And I was like, Absolutely not. And the guy told me, he's like, don't worry. You're just going to be in the corner. You're not going to do anything. You just need to stand in the corner and clap. And I was like, no, I can't do this. And he actually got really angry at me. And he was like, you were booked for this. And then he called the agency that had booked me to do that gig. And he's like, you know, telling him that I wasn't going to do it. And at first, I was actually worried that they weren't even going to let me out because it was a gated place. Um, 
And they're like, you know, you're getting paid in cash. And I think it was something like $400 cash, which is really good when you're being booked for a one, it was just a few hours, you know, sort of a thing. And this was 10 years ago almost. And, but I was just like, I, I can't, I can't do this. And luckily they let me out. But of course I knew that agency was never going to book me for anything else. They called me, they were upset. They were like, you need to get back in there. Like we booked you for the show, but it was obviously a very <laughs> bad kind of show. And I was like, I can't, I, no, like I cannot do this. And I just remember luckily getting out and just, I got to my car and I just like lost it. I was just in tears and shaking. And even, even now I can kind of feel the way my heart felt at that, mm -hmm. <laughs> at that moment. Cause it was just like, are they going to let me go? And I'm still trying to fight for my integrity and my rights. So after that, I was really like, you know what? I'm, I'm done. I'm done with trying to pursue acting because if it's going to be these sorts of situation. And I realized like, if you're not willing to expose yourself, you're not going to make it as a woman in Hollywood. You, you just won't, you know? Um, and, and all the women who have made it, who are more Christian or have, you know, that voice now, they, had that conversion once they reached the top. So they did a lot of things in their past that they're not proud of anymore. But I'm like, if you're starting with your morals, you know, at the beginning, you're, you're not going to be able to. Um, and so, you know, I, I ended up because I've always had love fashion and design. So I thought, well, okay, how can I still make Hollywood work? So it was like costume design. Um, but then again, it was the same sort of a thing where I would turn down a lot of scripts that would come across my way. And it was like, you know what? Uh, thank you, but I'm because not of available. the kind of de design work you would need to do for that particular script because of the content of the script, the content of the script. Yeah. Okay. Things that were really inappropriate. And as a costume designer, you're in the room for every single scene. Mm. Um, you're part of continuity and making sure that the outfit and everything and I was like first of all I would never watch this movie and I don't want to be in the room when it's being filmed so no <laughs> you know I don't want to be a part of that sort of a, of a film either it's like I want my name attached to something that's really cool and inspiring and beautiful and all those sorts of things so again God really closed the door where it became apparent like all right I'm really not going to get much work if I continue saying no and passing up projects, you know? Were there were there any good that you can recall moments where maybe somebody by virtue of them getting to know you or mm -hmm. seeing something about you or that you had an interesting conversation or moment of engagement with somebody who was maybe in that life but yes. could have been made curious? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when I would be on set, um, I mean, if, if, you know, those who are familiar with um, film sets, the crew can have a very colorful language <laughs> and talk about a lot of inappropriate things. So I, you know, I think they knew by my personality that I, I didn't engage with it. I would never address them with any sort of expletives in my sentences. And so some of them, when they would talk to me, they would change their language. All of a sudden, oh, they don't need to say F this, F that you know, four times in a sentence. Um, and, you know, they, I think that they would even comment on that of like, wow, like, I feel like I can't cuss around you. And it was like, okay, good, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Um, so I did see that there was some positive influences in that way. Um, and, you know, at first you kind of think, well, okay, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do and, and be a light. But then there comes a point where it's just, there's so few out there who are trying to be a light that the darkness ends up kind of coming over you. Mm -hmm. And I just even even how uh, just the environment was somewhat depressing to me where it was just kind of too heavy. And they often filmed on the weekends. So getting to mass, which I would, but it would like, you know, have to try and get to some obscure place or time or rush from set or have my costume assistant cover for me so I could run over to a mass and then get back. But it was stressful because I'm like, I know this isn't the ideal. You know, I want Sunday to be get dedicated to God and not be on set all day for something that I just find really draining now. It, it, was, it wasn't bringing any joy. And I think that that's something um, that shows you that that's not for you. Absolutely. You it's know? almost one of the core definitions of desolation, right? Yeah. It's, like, it's like, you know, that's how God talks to us sometimes is exactly. by zapping that energy from us. And you're like, wait a minute, what is this? Or even some things that we used to get energized really about. Yeah. And I mean, even one friend one time was like, go, go, you know, where the joy is, Sequoia. And I think that that was really wise. And, you know, I try and think about that now too. Like what, what brings joy? And now obviously there's things where we're supposed to stick it out. Life's not always easy, but this was different where I felt that heaviness being oppressive and affecting my life. And I knew that it wasn't sustainable. So that's why it was like, okay. It's time to bow out. And all throughout this, you're having your spiritual direction. You've got right. a mm -hmm. sacramental life that you're practicing. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's what kept me 
you know, sane. Because it was very easy. You know, you got invited to different places and just what you see. It's just a completely different culture that I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, unless you live in it and you've worked in it and been in that environment. It's just the most bizarre thing that there is. Um, and I mean, I, I was used and comfortable with like the celebrity culture because like my family, my mom's business, she has a lot of celebrity clientele and I've been to their homes and, you know, met several of them. Um, so at least also there, there wasn't so much allure about them because it was kind of like, okay, well, I, what a blessing. I mean, you know, I know this, like, this isn't like, wow, mm-hmm. big deal. <laughs> You're just people just like us. Um, but so around that time, uh, a nun who was a friend of mine uh, of a different order, she was, uh, they needed a new redesign of their habits. And she was like, you know, Sequoia, you're a Catholic and you're a designer. You could do it. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. <laughs> and it had actually always been a secret desire of mine to design. So you uh, had thought about it then? Well, yes, but not that I could actually do it. I just thought oh. I would love to design a habit, but I thought in order to do so, you had to found a religious order because that's all the religious order founders did that. So that's what I didn't even think about it like an outside designer could do it. I just thought only if you found the religious order can you design their habit. So when she said that, even though I had had, you know, that that desire to do that before, it was just kind of like, oh, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) This could be a thing. (laughs) Um, And so that she's the one who gave that impetus to to start and to do those things. And that just kind of, you know started taking off. And that's what led me to be like, okay, I can say goodbye to Hollywood. This is something that combines everything I love because it's design, it's the church, it's religious, it's beauty. And it was just like, finally, wow, this is it. Home. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, this is home. This is a vocation because it does take a specific kind of person and an understanding to do these things um, and a skill and all of that. So it was just like the perfect intersection. Like I forget, it's like a Japanese word where you do a diagram and it's like what the world needs, what you're good at, all that kind of thing. And it's just I like- I just saw that recently on LinkedIn too. Yeah, yeah. like a dead center thing yeah. where I was like, there's there there's There's four in the <laughs> Japanese version. There's three in the other one that I heard. That, uh, it's yes. um, what you're good at, what you love to do, because oftentimes those aren't the same things. And then what does the world need? And then the Japanese one has another one, which is- It might be money. How, it might what be. What makes money. And what's, what's the most, yeah. Yeah, what, which this know. does too. I mean, you know, it's not like- um, you know, uh, <laughs> right, you won't become out. a millionaire off of it necessarily, but you know, it's it's still it, of it course. is a way of life and it pays your bills and that's sort of a thing. So. One of my favorite scenes from there's a movie called Into Great Silence. Have you oh, seen that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you remember that scene? There's there were the um, I guess there's the one monk or brother who basically cuts out all the patterns mm-hmm. for all the habits for all the novices and he's his basically his job, right? Yes. But just watching him work right with those heavy scissors and just create those patterns and all that. In a way, it's got to be like incredibly meditative and contemplative and beautiful to do that. It is. And historically, it was always somebody within the convent who would do it. But because times have changed, a lot of the vocations that enter no longer know how to sew. It used to be every woman knew how to sew, at least to a certain level. Um, But we don't have that anymore. So that's why the vocations, those orders that have vocations coming in know like, okay, our older sisters who used to make this have passed away. So we now we actually have to go and outsource this. But what's nice is, at least with me, it's like it's outsourcing, but it's with somebody understanding that, you know, that way of life. Um, But it is meditative, definitely, because especially like when it comes to – well, actually, every habit pretty much that I'm aware of, there are certain prayers that they say as they put it on. So it's a sacramental for them. So it's not just like a normal piece of clothing. Correct. So you have that. Um, and then with the vestments, I mean, I've had them priests tell me too, like, you know, <laughs> you are going to receive all the graces from all the masses said while wearing this vestment set for as long as these vestments exist. So it was just like, wow, what a way to touch eternity. <laughs> um, and, and to, it's just, and it's incredible to know that I'd be receiving all those graces too. It's almost like, oh, you're paying me to make these. Maybe I should be paying <laughs> you. The other way around. Right. There's this beautiful prayer that we do right before Mass. Um, my previous pastor had it up in the sacristy. Mm-hmm. And as we're vesting, for every vestment, there's yes. a unique prayer. Right. So for the alb, for the cincture, for mm-hmm. the, you know, some, some not, not all the time, but depending on the circumstances, right. you know, you'll wear other, other vestments, a cope as an example, mm-hmm. but there's a given prayer for, for everything an amis if you wear one around yes. your neck. And, and it's so beautiful because you're kind of putting on this 
this armor, but I do think about you know the people, the makers of these vestments. The mm-hmm. as I'm vesting oh, wow. for mass, yeah. right? So, and it's something that kind of happens pretty naturally, yeah. at least for me. But I'm I'm sure I'm not the only guy who does that. You right? Know? Exactly. And you know, it used to be a bunch of nuns in the convent who would make priest vestments. But but again, you know, that's there's only a few orders who still do that, and they have their calendars booked for years. <laughs> I bet they're busy. <laughs> yeah, they are. So it's nice to be able to be one of those people who's able to participate in that and do that. And especially as a Norbertine liturgy is of you know the most utmost concern and. Um, where all of our efforts go into beautifying the liturgy and carrying it out solemnly. So for me, as a woman, this is my way of being able to participate in that and to help to beautify and solemnize the liturgy. Some people look at the idea of solemnity and inside the liturgy as, um, you know, they read into that things that, that you know, people who love liturgies perhaps don't even see. They read into it things of, you know, strictures or guidelines or the rubrics out doing the gospel or things like that. But based on all the things that we've discussed, my my guess is that you're of the opinion that these are ways to kind of draw our hearts and minds to the transcendent as we pray, as we exactly. worship. Is that how you view yes, it? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think people, again, like it's kind of like with etiquette, we're like, well, that's stuffy rule. And it's like, no, this is out of love. And, and, and God is so mysterious and great and almighty that we should have beauty and mystery to draw people in. Because if it's a, something that's banal and everyday, I mean, you know, you have some people in one camp where they're like, oh, we have to make it accessible and make it so that, you know, kids want to go. And it, it ends up really dumbing it down. And that's not what they want, especially for the younger generations. They're intrigued by mystery. Mm. That's why they're drawn to, you know, certain things that could be like spiritualism or whatever, or Hinduism or Buddhism, because it's like, oh, well, that's in that language and that has that mystique and they have all their incense and their things surrounding. It's like, no, keep those things. That's what the youth want. (laughs) I had a conversation with a young, two actually, two young mothers at the Mm -hmm. parish and they they have arm babies. They're probably, I don't know, nine, 10 months, maybe a year. I don't know. But they're way in the back. And I recounted to them, which I hadn't even thought about it until you just said what you said, but I, I recounted to them that when my kids were young, at one point we brought we, – we came all the way to the front. And the ironic thing or the counterintuitive thing is when you bring your kids all the way up to the front, they actually are more behaved. Yes. Because mm-hmm. they're looking at all these things exactly. that you just said, right? They're drawn to mm-hmm. – and I got to tell you like – All the, the senses. <laughs> these moms were like, wow, because it was their first baby, right? Mm-hmm. By the time you're like three or four, you're like – Right, like, like my friend says, you're letting them juggle knives. You know what I mean. So you're not, you're not <laughs> right. that concerned. But the first baby is like, oh, you know. So they're way in the back. They want to make yeah. sure they make no noise. And half the time, they're missing it, and the kid's missing it. Right. And, and and coming up to the front, the kid would actually be maybe more engaged. But similar dynamic that you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you know, it, it and it's something that speaks to all the senses: the smell of the incense, even the side of it. You know, the beauty of the vestments, the beautiful music or chant. You know, it's just it, it elevates your soul and it. It, it is a preview of heaven, you know, where it should be. And it it shows you that there's something greater here um, and just points to that mystery, which is what true beauty should always do. One of my favorite lines from, uh, it's not a line, but it's sort of a retort when people talk about the riches that the church has. I'm sure you've heard this, mm-hmm. you know, the yes. Vatican and the works of right. art and the <laughs> melt gold. Melt it down and melt it, it down and poor. give it to the poor. And, yeah. But the but you know the easy response, which may not be simple to hear, easy to hear, but it's a very simple and correct response, is that you know you want to give the best that you have to God. Like exactly, who else would have the gold? Right. Like you. Like right. wh- like wh- where else is it going to go? You know right. what I mean? Not, exactly. not that not that these chalices are made out of gold anyway, but I'm just saying, right. you know, the idea that we give the very best to God is such a simple thing that people, even if they're not really religious, can kind of understand. Yeah, exactly. It makes sense. That you would give your very best to to God. Um, so you're designing, you've done the 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 whole Hollywood route. Now right. you've decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to give this and kind of make all these streams come together right. in perfect harmony. Right. <laughs> and you, you, have to, you have to take, a, there's a moment where you go from you know, this, and I don't, Hollywood or entertainment is never sort of reliable in this sense, but you have some paycheck, you've got this network, you're, right. you're plugged in. There's a moment where you pull that plug mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm leaving the matrix. I'm kind of like, you know, right. <laughs> I'm pulling out, I'm going to go out on my own. Is that yeah. scary for you? Yeah. I mean, sure, it's scary, but I think um, 
it helped in that, you know, still raised in a very different way, like even despite the trauma. Like we did, um, you know, like I started off in Catholic school, but then I was eventually homeschooled. So I did a lot of self-study, a lot of stuff that you had to do on your own. Um, so I was used to thinking in a different way. And then, of course, have, thinking that I was going to enter the convent for most of my life, I was always very different, even from my Catholic girlfriends at the time, you know, who are my age, you know, we're in our early teens, because my eye was pointed on something else, and we had different goals. Um, so I was kind of used to already going against the grain all the time. <laughs> so that part wasn't so scary. But but even God uses different things. Like, I mean, even before um, or, or kind of consecutively with when I was starting my design business, I also was um, the West Coast director for a nonprofit. And it was a great, you know, wonderful endeavor and also very well-paying and all of that sort of a thing. And then overnight, the board decided we're not going to do this. And they cut pretty much everybody mm. from 24 down to like seven people. It was, it was crazy. And that just taught me at first, you know, it was like, what, <laughs> what the heck? Like this was one of the main things you were doing. Um, but it really taught me, you know, there's no such thing as security in a job. And as an entrepreneur and my mother being an entrepreneur, seeing the work that she's done and just seeing like, no, you can actually make your own way in life and that these things are going to happen. You know, somebody, as long as you're employed by someone else, you can always get laid off. And that's not to say that everybody needs to be an entrepreneur because not everybody, you know, has that desire to do that. And that's totally fine. But to recognize if it's fear that's keeping somebody back from starting, that there is no security in that. Like life is just filled with a bunch of challenges and different things. And, you know, why not, why not do it on your own? Because <laughs> and, and entrepreneurship is like leadership school as far as I'm concerned. Yes. I mean, we get we get these ideas in the corporate world of like who leaders are and it's the guy with the most, you know, titles after his his right. name. But the reality of like what you did, which is basically put all this stuff aside and, you know, given a good, I guess, um, model in terms of your mom and the work, the, the stuff that she did. But right. this idea of just kind of putting it aside and going, no, I can go and do this and yes. hustle and kind of get all mm -hmm. that. Um, I think that to me is like the ultimate sort of form of, of leadership from at least a work perspective. Yeah, no, I think so. It's what I endeavor to be. <laughs> and, and it is kind of um, just trial by fire. You know, you have to try different things. But what's something that's really comforting, it's just like, well, if something doesn't work out, on to the next idea. And if something, you know, sinks or goes under, we can build again because it's not about the business. It's about the person. Mm. And if you know that you have those skills and you're capable, what's to stop you from rebuilding? What do you think would happen if the titans of industry, titans of tech, titans mm -hmm. of whatever these things are, understood what you just said? It's not about the business or the money. It's about the person. What do you think would happen to the world if that happened? Well, I think it would be wildly, drastically different. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, on on every level, um, because human dignity is something that isn't focused on at all. I mean, that's why we have all the issues that we have, whether it be abortion or the race issues or whatever it might be, that the per human person is lost. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be incredible. I think that they believe and they understand their own worth and that's why they've been so successful because they do know that they can create whatever it is they put their mind to, but they don't really share that with the world. They don't really encourage others and show them like, no, you are also capable of great things. God didn't just give, you know, a few of these gifts to an elite few. He, he gave each and every one of us our own specific gift and niche that we can really thrive in. Um, but people are just really used to, um, you know, going with the flow and thinking, okay, this is just the route I, I go to college and then I get this job and then I work into it and, you know, try to buy a home and have a 401k and hope that it all works out. Um, and to me, that's just limiting because it's, it's the kind of the top limiting what the masses can do. And it's saying, know your place, like this is your place and you stay there. Um, where I don't think that they're focusing on the empowerment of entrepreneurship in that sense. It's more of like, yes, worship me and how amazing I am and all these, you know, gizmos and gadgets, but they're not sharing how everybody else can do that as well. Like Ooh. there's room for everybody. Cause I know there's some people who would be, who would say, you know, like, well, not everybody, we can't have a bazillion Apple kind of companies or a bazillion of this or that, but, but that's not true. Cause everybody has their own specific thing. Um, and I really do firmly believe there's enough for everybody. Um, they just have to go after it. What about times you, you describe kind of 
pivoting, right? At least that's what mm-hmm. we call it, where right. I tried something, didn't work. You know, a lot of the 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 things that I find is how helpful um, examples of failure can be for people to like hear them and go, oh, wow, well, that's not dissimilar to the thing I'm going through. And it gives you a sense of hope in the in the business or leadership world. Can you recall a particular failure that you've experienced maybe in setting up this business or in doing other things that that's been formative for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one of my first actually official like businesses that I had started, which never got off the ground, it was called, oh gosh, what was the name? It was like Wounder something fashion. It was a really weird name. Um, and I, the boyfriend at the time, um, he and I were, uh, doing this business together. So he was the one who thought of the name. <laughs> That's why it was His weird. No? <laughs> but anyway, you know, ended up breaking up and all that kind of a thing. And so that went by the wayside along with it because it was, but what I realized from that one, it was great because I went through all the route of creating a business and filing this and that. So I knew what to do and it wasn't so scary, you know, cause I think that's half the battle. People are like, I don't know where to start. It's like, I didn't either, but I just went down to the business bureau and I was like, I don't know what to do. I want to do this. What do I do? And they're like, Oh, then you need this paperwork. And there you go. Um, and then two, it just, it made me realize too that I was doing um, somebody else's vision. And that's even something that I've finally, I think, in now that I'm, you know, 32 and <laughs> more in my own person, that I'm done kind of doing other people's visions and dreams. So there's been other projects where I, I used to be like, I got to take every opportunity in order to make it work. But then now I realize, no, I need to only take those opportunities that are in alignment with who I am, with my greater vision and purpose. And those are the things that I can work on and help with. So it showed me I needed to stop doing that and to stop, you know, helping to create someone else's vision and make sure it was actually my own. Um, And then that you don't do business with (laughs) somebody that you're dating (laughs) because you don't know where that's going to go and then that's going to affect it. So, um, you know, it had a lot of lessons in it that that I taught me well. And then even, you know, with costume design, even though I did do, you know, some films and things like that and it was fun, I felt like that was a failure because I felt like, okay, I set out to become this famous costume designer, you know, be up there with like Sandy Powell and get that award and all that kind of a thing. But I didn't. Um, But it just, you know, now in retrospect, it's like, oh, but I needed just these experiences because even if it's just for the reason of being able to say, I don't have that what if always bugging me. What if I had tried that? Um, And my family, we've had a lot of death recently. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, both friends and family. Um, And the one that's like most notable that hurt the most was that of my little brother. Hmm. And I think was his death, because that was in 2019, um, that it just really made apparent how short life is because, you know, he had just turned 25. Um, and it just really, any any bit of fear that I had in my businesses and entrepreneurship, it kind of evaporated because it made me just see like, okay, you know what? What have you got to lose? You could, you know, die tomorrow. Just do it. Just do it. Out the window. <laughs> and, yeah, have no more what ifs. And I'm not talking about pursuing, you know, bad things or anything like that. But I think that if you have something on your heart and you're like, well, I kind of really want to do this, try it. If it doesn't work, fine. There'll either be lessons learned from it or it'll take off and it'll be something wilder than, you know, somebody could ever have imagined. So, And in any case, God has something potentially to teach you in whatever it is. In exactly. your great success or mm-hmm. perhaps failure in doing right. that, um, he's he's forming you, he's loving exactly. you, he's shaping you. What's the business called, your 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 business right now? The design one? Your the design liturgical business. company. The liturgical company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Where, it's very well, simple. <laughs> how, how, how do folks uh, get to that, how they find out about that? They that, just uh, go to the liturgical co.com mm-hmm. com. Mm-hmm. and then they can check out your designs and yep and you do things Contact for me. lowly deacons yes i do <laughs> yeah not, not just uh priests and bishops but right exactly <laughs> that's awesome yeah no i definitely i I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of your work i've seen thank uh, you yeah it, it's really beautiful and just again the way that you're living out and i, I you were very intentional about using the word vocation Mm-hmm. And I've been in sim- similarly intentional in describing what this show is about is to showcase people who are living out their vocation and often, you know, through positions of leadership and setting mm-hmm. up a business and starting all the things you've done and pivoting the way that you have is exactly emblematic of Thank that. Thank you. 
And it's my great hope that people can listen, you know, more people can listen to stories like this and be guided to do the same and to kind of be out there in the world as, as kind of leaven, you know, absolutely um, shaping it. And I think entrepreneurship, especially for, you know, Catholics and Christians that they really need to, if they feel that pull to consider it, because I think that's one of the best ways that we can influence the culture, you know, at large. Being entrepreneurial. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, just on that point, the idea of what outsized value in American culture business has today. In other words, this is one of my themes that I talk about all the time is this idea of like, we're in this moment, in this time and place. Because of God's providence, we could have been born in 15th century. We could have been, you know, we're talking about courtiers earlier. We could have been like, you know, some great palace courtier back in the day or in some other uh, country or time and place. But we're here. We're here now Mm -hmm. for this particular purpose. And in this moment, in this country, you know, entrepreneurialism, business, industry, they have this huge outsized value and outsized impact on the culture and responsibility and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's almost like the mission field is that exactly. Yeah. And that's a big part of, you know, this podcast, frankly, is the idea of like getting people to recognize that the work that they do, the places that they're at, they have to live that vocation and do the things that, you know, that that you're doing, that you're being an example of. And hopefully that'll, that'll be the case. Sequoia, any, um, I always sort of end the episodes by just asking people if they're going to share one thing, you know, to uh, a, a personal leadership position, living out that vocation. Um, you know, maybe somebody who's struggling, maybe somebody who's like, you know, hey, I've tried a couple at bats at this thing and it just doesn't seem to be working out. And I want to really, you know, live my faith and I want to trust God, but, you know, this thing isn't working. Think about those people and just kind of open mic, you know, minute, whatever you want to do, but talk to them at that at this particular moment. Okay. Well, um, I know that, you know, we as humans can get down to a very, very dark place. And I've been there multiple times um, with all the different things in my family background from trauma to deaths, all that sort of a thing. And and life will come to a point, I think, for everybody um, that where it seems like you can't go any further and that there's no way, you know, there's no way that you can succeed and be successful but just hold on a little bit longer. And I think because I, you know, knew like, just just wait a little longer, just wait until tomorrow and you'll feel better. And then the sun comes out and, and it does. And, you know, things change. So if you're in that dark place, just hold on. Um, and then surround yourself with people who, who lift you up. Life is so short. So it's like, I, I think that Cutting out negativity in every form needs to go, <laughs> um, whether that's, you know, as simple as monitoring how much time you're spending on social media to saying goodbye to certain people and ending certain relationships, whatever it is, do it. Um, and then and then just listen, listen, make time to go. And I know it's difficult right now with the circumstances, but if you have adoration, you know, go and make time to sit in our Lord's presence and tell him everything, even when you're angry. <laughs> I've sat there and I've been <laughs> furious, angry tears streaming down my face. Um, but I think he he likes that because he he wants to be, be in relationship with you. So even he wants to hear all of that. He's there to hear the ugly. And I'm so grateful to have like the confessor that I do because even when I've gotten mad at God and he's like, that's okay. God can handle it. <laughs> you know, he wants to hear this from you. So that was comforting and it gave me that permission. So... I'm giving you permission. <laughs> you can, you can, uh, God can handle everything, even your anger at him. Um, and then he'll show you the way. Um, but you just have to really listen and do your part. Um, and then also, you know, any good desire I do believe comes from God. So if you feel something in your heart and it won't go away, that means you're supposed to, you know, go after that. So, so do, don't have the fear um, to, to do those things because you are worthy and you are great. Sequoia, awesome. That was really, really good. And I know that that's going to help a lot of people. And I commend you for everything that you've done. And especially at such a young age, you Thank know, to you. go out there and do this and live this vocation and inspire others to to do the same. We'll have um, in the show notes links to um, your company, okay. also links to the Norbertines and to Great. the Carmelites. So Wonderful. we could, we could educate people <laughs> on all of these things. And uh, we'll give extra credit for anybody who can say pre-monstratensian <laughs> because that one is a tongue twister for just about anybody. Okay, so final thing, Sequoia, a little fun game that we do rapid fire questions for our guests and so here goes who'd be the better dressmaker saint john of the cross or saint Teresa of avila Ooh, that's <laughs> really <laughs> um probably saint john of the cross because he's more 
maybe less meticulous. Well, it, it depends. For the design, St. John of the Cross would probably be better because he'd be more imaginative. But St. Teresa of Avila would be better because she's more meticulous on cutting it out correctly and all that sort of a thing because it does take accuracy. Nice. Your favorite TV show when you were 16 and do you still watch? Uh, what Not to Wear. <laughs> and yes, I still do watch it on occasion. You're going to go on Jeopardy. Who do you take with you, a Norbertine or a Dominican? A Norbertine, always. <laughs> I figured you couldn't say something different. So right. they're, they're both uh, pretty brainiacs, so yes, uh, either are. one would probably work. But, right. uh, but, <laughs> but no. I have a prejudice. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Awesome. Thanks for playing. I really want to thank you. Thank you. For coming on the show um, and sharing your story and you know look forward to having you um, back again. So thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. I hope so. Uh, up, just for everybody listening, we've got incredible shows coming up as well. Um, Armando Cervantes, Rodrigo Gonzalez. There's just a, like you know full slate of really, really amazing stories that are coming on the show so remember to subscribe if you're listening to me right now don't just stream it because everybody streams just hit the little button subscribe super important and please remember it all comes down to this god bless you if you enjoyed this episode of living the call please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review tell someone you love about the show and spread the word Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.